0: Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Thank you, Mike. I forgot to turn on my my mic here. All right, we're going to look at uh, Isaiah 63 this morning. I'm excited to share this with you. It's it's really different, and, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm always impressed with, if, if we, when we teach through the Bible, boy, it forces you to deal with a lot of different things that maybe ordinarily you wouldn't, um, and so I just ask you to, you know, buckle your seatbelt and, uh, and get ready. Um, you might need your seatbelts on this morning. You know, last year... Uh, a sportscaster, I don't remember, know who it was, but he asked some of the ISU, ISU basketball players, if you had to walk down a dark alley on a dark night in a dangerous neighborhood, who else on the team would you want with you? And they all said, Dustin Hoag. Uh, they obviously thought he was a pretty tough guy who could take care of himself in a street fight. Well, I want to ask you a question this morning. Is God anything like Dustin Hoke? The book of Isaiah has told us about, of a Savior who bore our sins in his body, who came to bind up the brokenhearted. We have been told that God rejoices over us and that he takes delight in us and that he has a glorious future for us. But one question remains... Is God mighty enough to save me? When the enemy comes in like a flood, when all hell breaks loose, can Christ handle that? When Satan, the Antichrist, and the rulers of this world rise up together to to make war on the saints, do we have a Savior who can stand up to that? In our daily lives and the spiritual battles, can God save me? Is he mighty enough to save from alcoholism, from lusts, from being totally absorbed with myself? Is he mighty enough to support my heart when I feel like I am close to losing my heart completely? Is God powerful enough to deal with wicked people, with ISIS? Is God mighty enough To defeat all the powers of the world that are arrayed against him. Well, the answer of Isaiah 63 is a resounding yes to all of these. We not only have a merciful Savior, we have a mighty Savior. David said in Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? The answer, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Zephaniah 3:17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty warrior to savior. Now this mighty salvation of God is totally comprehensive. You are to experience his might and his strength presently. Uh, Paul tells us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe. He is at hand presently to help you, to protect you, to defend you, to strengthen you. It is his power that saves you. He makes people who are spiritually dead alive to God. He changes selfish human beings into people who love God and who love others. That is all the power of God, the might of God. He turns complainers into people who rejoice and give thanks in all things. He turns people who don't want anyone to tell them what to do into people who submit to one another and who serve one another and give preference to one another's interests. All of that is part of the might of God and His power to save. But there is is more. There is another aspect here. Clearly, the events of this chapter in the first five verses refer to the final judgment of men and Satan at the second coming of Christ. He will then crush all his enemies and usher in his kingdom, which will have no end. This is a bloody passage. It is a gory passage. It is a, power, a, a, a powerful passage that describes Christ in a way that some maybe have never thought of him. I will admit right up front that this is a difficult passage. It's difficult because for many people, it is hard to conceive of a God, of a God who takes vengeance. So what is presented here as sobering but deeply encouraging news becomes something that people stumble over. But the vengeance of the Lord is out of love for his people. The vengeance of the Lord is for the salvation of the people. In fact, in order for the Lord to save you, Satan and those who do evil must be destroyed. There there can be no heaven unless they are dealt with. And if you followed us through the book of Isaiah, you will get this next statement. One commentator said, there can be no Isaiah 60 through 62 without 63. In other words... I mean, we can't have the glorious future, the incredible joy, all that God has promised us and his people without this God who comes in power and might and in vengeance to fight for his people. It may help to think of it this way. If you were in a Nazi concentration camp in the 1940s, During World War II, you would hope and pray that the Allies would get there in time to destroy the Nazis so that you and others could be liberated before you were starved, gassed, or burned in their ovens. And you would rejoice when the Allies arrived. Yes, God is love. And that's the thing we emphasize over and over again. God is love. He is compassionate. He is abounding in loving kindness. Full of mercy. Willing to save sinners. Not willing that any should perish. But the Bible also tells us that someday God will take vengeance on his enemies. God shows no eagerness to do this. He said in Ezekiel, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. But when people take their stand against the Lord, the Lord is the one who will come out victorious. The Bible insists time and time again that there is a day and a place for vengeance. And without this aspect of God, without his willingness and capability to take vengeance, he would be nothing more than a weak, helpless, pitiable being. Without this attribute, evil would never end evil would always win wit would always win injustices would never be righted cruelty would never have consequences moral wrongs would never would go forever unpunished the oppressors and the wicked would always get away with it sin and rebellion against god would never end and heaven would never happen the book of revelation says that when christ returns the nations will be gathered against him and against the saints, against God's people. Revelation nineteen nineteen puts it this way, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies all gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Who is the rider that all the nations and the rulers and the beasts are, are gathered together to make war against? Well, Revelation nineteen eleven says, the writer is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and makes war. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. So that is, is obviously Jesus. And the question is, will he be able to handle all these forces that are arrayed against him? Verse 15 gives us the answer. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he With which to strike down the nations, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible portrays Christ returning from heaven the second time, not as a helpless baby in a manger, but as a warrior judge. And what a comfort this passage is to be to God's people. Especially what a comfort a passage like this will be to God's people in the last days who are suffering terribly under the persecution of the beast and the false prophet and the Antichrist. Christ will come mighty to save and will put an end to their sufferings and persecution and will take vengeance on those who have persecuted them. So the picture here in Isaiah 63 is of God's people who are under cruel oppressors. Edom is the longtime enemy of Israel. Basra is the capital city of Edom. Edom hated Israel. They hated Israel with the most intense hatred. They hated Israel so much that the name Edom came to represent all who hate God's people and the people of God. You know, when the children of Israel left Egypt, uh, Moses sent this very respectful letter to the king of Edom saying, let us pass through your country. He said, we'll stay on the king's highway. We won't go through any field. We won't drink any of your water. But Edom answered, you may not pass through. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. We will come out and kill you. And they did come out with their army and turned Moses and the Israelites away. And when we were in the Middle East a few years ago, uh, we, we drove through Edom, uh, south of Jordan, uh, just south of the Dead Sea. And Rami, a missionary there who we were with and who's been here to speak uh, at Real Life Church, Rami told us something very interesting. He said that the Edomites still hate Israel to this day, and they go back to this story in, in Exodus and they boast about how they would not let Moses and the children of Israel come into their land because they still hate them, and they brag about their heartlessness uh, toward the treatment of the Israelites. They're proud of that. So once more I ask, and once more along with the people of Israel, the children of God, I ask, in the presence of enemies who would kill, steal, and destroy, the question is, is God mighty enough to save Is God fearsome enough to deal with these satanically energized men and armies and kingdoms who hate his people? Or is God so soft that he cannot subdue or destroy his opponents? Well, God answers this by a prophetic vision that he gives to Isaiah. Isaiah sees an image. He sees a prophetic vision. He sees an image of a mighty warrior who has defeated his enemies who opposed him and has now come to save his people. And he he looks up in this vision and he sees a lone solitary hero, as it says in verse 1, marching forward in the greatness of his strength. He sees this glorious warrior marching forward or striding forward in the greatness of his might. And Isaiah is totally awestruck at this image and at the power of this this lone, solitary hero. When we were in the Sistine Chapel in Rome, uh, our tour guide showed us a picture of Michelangelo's painting of the Last Judgment. And he, he pointed out different elements in the picture, angels and hell and devils and demons... And then he directed our attention up at the top of the painting to Jesus in the picture. And he said, And what do we see here? A weak and gentle Savior? No. We see Jesus coming as a gladiator. And I got to admit, when he said that, shivers went up and down my spine. Because I was just taken with this image of the glory and the might of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah sees this mighty warrior, and he asks two questions. First, who is this? Who is he? Who is he who is coming? Verse 1, who is coming from Edom? Who is this coming from Basra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, marching forward in the greatness of his strength? Who is this? Well, this is a vision of Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's clearly a vision of Jesus Christ, the Savior. And as we'll see, this is almost a word-for-word for, word for word used by John in the book of Revelation to describe Jesus Christ. And I love this question, who is coming? You know, salvation is not just a, a spiritual condition. It is a, salvation is a divine person who comes to get you who comes to deliver you. In Romans 7, Paul said, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, not what will help me. Not what steps do I need to take that will get me out of this. But who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Je- It is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Salvation is a person who comes to save you. Whatever your need is, from, from the beginning of coming, from your first initial coming to Christ to forgive your sins till the final day, whatever your need is, the answer is the Savior. The Lord identifies himself as the one coming, As the one coming. The NIV says. It is I. It is I. He's talking. Isaiah knows it's the Lord. It is I. The Lord. Proclaiming victory. Mighty to save. I am coming. And I have the power and the might to save you. And when we sing that song. Our God is mighty to save. Um, we, We need to think about what that means. Um. When we, th- when we say that God is mighty to save, again, it's, it's a totally comprehensive salvation that, that gets you from the point of, get, of going, on, going on to your knees and repenting of your sins and asking Jesus to forgive your sins, to save you. But it's, it's saving you throughout all of life, getting you through the end times, getting you through the judgment, getting you through all of eternity. The, the, he is mighty to save you to the uttermost. It means that there is nothing that is so powerful that he cannot save you from it. It means that Satan himself and all his schemes against you, no matter what Satan has done to kill, steal, or destroy you, nothing can stand up against the might of our Savior. It means that no person or group of people, no devil, no demon, no powers of darkness, nothing in heaven or on earth can keep God from saving you. You know Jesus said I give them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Get this image of the power of God to hold us and save us and keep us. But it has to be it has to be practical. It has to affect you where you are right now this morning. It affects your future, it affects everything, but it has to affect you right now, this morning. What is your need this morning? What is your weakness? What is your problem or your pain this morning? Lift up your eyes like Isaiah and see someone is coming to you, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is the Lord himself, mighty to save the Lord is coming to save you. So the first question that Isaiah asked was, well, who is this? And the second question is, why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? And the Lord's answer is, I have, trod, I have trodden the wine press. I have trampled the nations in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and stained all my clothing. Very plainly put, his garments are covered with the blood or in the blood of his enemies. This is a, it's, a, it's a gruesome picture. And yet a, it is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to judge the world. We have the same picture of Christ in Revelation 19.15. 1915. Jesus Christ, uh, this, this is a quote from that verse. He, or Jesus Christ, treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This shows the, the utter power of Christ over his enemies. The wine press is a symbol of the wrath of God. Wicked men are pictured as clusters of grapes thrown into or cast into the wine press. And Christ himself treads the wine press and, as it were, becomes stained with the juice of the grapes. Christ's power is overwhelming. His vengeance is fierce. Men will perish in judgment. This is what makes a verse like John 3.16 so amazing and so powerful. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not or will not perish, but will have everlasting life. If you believe in him, you will not perish in this judgment. Men will perish, but by believing in Christ, we are delivered from perishing in judgment. Verse 4, For the day of judgment was in my heart, and the year of redemption has come. One version says, For I planned the day of vengeance. It was in my heart, or I resolved that I must have a day of vengeance, the Lord says. There is a day fixed by God in which Jesus Christ will judge the world and save us from Satan and the enemies of the gospel. And it's interesting, the day of vengeance is also the day of our redemption This is really two sides of of one coin. It is the defeat of the enemies of God. It is at that time that our ultimate day of salvation and redemption will be experienced and known for us for eternity. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. He is also the Lion. Uh, As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus Christ is good, but he is not safe, at least not to his adversaries. He is spattered with blood because he's been fighting for his people. His power and his might have a purpose to save, to deliver his people from wicked and powerful enemies. He is the avenger of his people. He is as terrifying to his foes as he is precious to his friends. Uh, Statement that I read in one commentary. He is as terrifying to his foes as he is precious to his friends. Verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help, so my own arm worked salvation for me. This mighty warrior, the Lord, emphasizes that he completely destroyed the enemy all by himself without the aid of any human help. He is such a mighty God. Now, almost in a... Complete change of tone, Isaiah moves on to recount the Lord's loving favor to his people in verse 7. He says, I will tell of the steadfast love of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel according to his compassion and his steadfast love. Verse 8 goes on. The Lord said, They are my people. Who will not be false to me, so he became their savior, he became their mighty savior. in other words, they had seen the Lord show himself mighty to save throughout their history. and verse nine recounts begins to recount some of this in all their distresses, he too was distressed, or in their troubles, he, he troubled himself, and he took note of their afflictions and acted on their behalf in love and compassion, he redeemed them, he saved them. He lifted them up and carried them in the days of old. So Isaiah here is, is really recounting or recalling um, how God has shown his loving kindness to his people in mighty acts of salvation throughout their history. But then in verse 10, they recognize that something has gone wrong. Even though God did so many things for them, it says, yet they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and fought against them and became their enemy. As a result of this rebellion, they are not presently seeing the saving acts of God. They are living in defeat and not in victory. Verse 11, then his people recalled the days of Moses, the days when God acted mightily for them. He brought Moses and his people through the Red Sea. He guided them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them glorious victories. And so, so Isaiah is recalling this, and they are remembering the great acts of God. And as they do this, it stirs within them a deep longing to experience God's mighty power again. So verse eleven goes on. Where is he who brought Moses and his people through the Red Sea? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them? Where is the God who divided the waters, who guided his people and made his name glorious among them? I mean, this question really is is the the uh, the heartbeat of the last half of this chapter. we're, We're told of this mighty God who is mighty to save, and they're saying, "Where is this God?" Who is mighty to save. And they have a deep longing. A deep desire to see the salvation of the Lord. Verse 15. Oh look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne. Holy and glorious. Where now are your zeal and your might. They are crying out for God to reveal his zeal and his might. It seems your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. If you're honest, probably some here have felt that way. It seems your compassion and your tenderness are withheld from us. Where are your zeal and your might? You say you're a God who is mighty to save. Where are you? Where is this God who is mighty to save? Instead of feeling like they have a mighty Savior doing mighty things for them, they feel that God has deserted them. And they, they, they repeat this question throughout the rest of the chapter. Where is he? Perhaps even in your own mind, thoughts have come to you. Maybe when, we've sang, maybe when we've sung that song, our God is mighty to save. And maybe you've thought, well, where is he in my situation? Or where was he when my husband or my wife left me? Or when my husband or my wife did this? Or when my son died? Or when I got laid off? Where, where, where is God who is mighty to save? Verse 18, for a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like, like, those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. What a, what a vivid description of the feelings of, of the Israelites, God's people. I mean, they were saying we don't see God's saving saving acts on our behalf any more than if we were not His people. We have become like those who are not called by your name, over those like those whom you have never ruled over. Well they have begun to see though, and it really culminates at the beginning of this next chapter, but they have begun to see that the answer is in God. But you, O oh Lord, our our Father. You, O oh Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from of old is your name. They're beginning to come back, even though they've rebelled against God, and they, they've, they recount his mighty deeds, they, they are turning back, they are seeing that their answer is this mighty God who comes to save. And Isaiah himself, as, as, as is portrayed in this last half of the p- chapter, which is really a prayer led by Isaiah on behalf of the people. Uh, Isaiah knows that the kind of salvation they need can only come from the Lord. And he cries out in one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, in Isaiah 64, 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And it's like Isaiah sees the heavens like this massive curtain covering God and covering, covering the heavens. And he says, oh, that you would rip that curtain in two. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and save your people again. And that is the answer to everything. God alone can save. God alone can make make things right. So this chapter ends with a, a deep and an earnest cry for God to show up. And that is the place that God brings all of us to. He brings us to our knees. He brings us to a place where we, we, we've, we've seen and we've heard of the might of the Lord. Maybe we've experienced it in our past. We've read about it in the scripture. And we come to that place where we want to we see it and know it for ourselves again, now, presently. And so we call and cry out to the Lord, our Father, come. Oh, look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious, and bring your zeal and your might into our lives and our situation. All right, I want to move on to uh, applications for us from this this morning. Um, Number one, anyone who might be, anyone who may be living fearlessly or carelessly in unrepentant sin, should repent this morning. You know, if you are in Christ, God is eternally for you. But there is a temporal sense in which he may oppose a course of life that you have chosen if you are living in conscious rebellion against him. That's not the normal Christian life, but it does happen. You know, Peter said, God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. There may be someone here this morning who is uh, walking in a sort of a rebellious pride against God, someone who is worked up inside in their heart, ranting and raving, as it were, inside or upset at God. And what you really need to do this morning is just humble yourself and look to him and call upon him for his salvation. Number two, no matter what your situation, what your need, call upon the Lord to save you. The Lord says uh, in Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me. And that's a verse I've turned to multitudes of times when I've been trouble. It just you repeat that verse is so simple. It just totally redirects my thoughts Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. And I just go to the bank with that. I mean, I just count on that. And that's what the Lord wants us to do. Just as you called upon the Lord to save you from your sins, call upon him on his mighty saving acts in all of your weaknesses and needs in life. You know, and as long as you are praying for something to happen, but really looking to other people or other help, to make it happen. God won't honor that. You know, Psalm thirty-three, sixteen: no king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior by the, his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite its strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord, and this is the key part of the verse, but the eyes of the Lord are on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them. The eyes of the Lord are turned toward those whose hope is in him. It says to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. Boy, those are some pr- very practical needs that are mentioned there. Keep them alive in famine and in death. Turn your eyes to the Lord, to the Lord and, and he turns his eyes toward you on those who hope in him and, and, and in his unfailing love. Number three. Wait for the final outcome of all things, and you will see that God is mighty to save. You know, the one rock-solid promise we are given in the Bible is that God's people will be totally vindicated at the coming of Jesus Christ. All that we ever hope for is assured us when we see Jesus. Cindy and I listened to a message uh, coming back from Kansas City on uh, Friday by uh, R.T. Kendall. And he said, three things I know for sure. He was talking about the book of Revelation. He said he didn't understand the book of Revelation, but he saw three things that he understood for sure out of the book of Revelation. One, God wins. Two, the devil loses. And three, those who overcome will have a glorious vindication. Most of what we hope for will be manifested when the Lord comes. And, 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 and I, I don't mean that we'll only get some of what we hope for when I say most. Of, I'm just saying that 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 um, we will see partially what we hope for in this life, in the present. And we do. We see, uh, we see the Lord's multitude of goodnesses to us day after day. But ultimately, all that we hope for, we will experience or see when the Lord comes. You know, when the Corinthians uh, were harshly judging Paul as an, as an inferior apostle and a poor speaker, he said this, it matters, very little, it, ma- it, "'It matters very little to me what you think of me. "'It is the Lord who judges me. "'Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. "'Wait till the Lord comes.'" At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Paul was so confident that when the Lord comes again, everything would be settled. Everything will be answered at that point. Everything will be made right. He is so confident in that that he is not disturbed at all by by the present attacks upon him. He said, you know, it matters very little to me because I'm just going to wait. And I know that when the Lord comes, everything's going to be made right. Each man will receive his praise from God. God will straighten everything out. Second Corinthians six: God is just. He will pay back those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. You now we say, amen, awesome. And we want that to happen this afternoon or tomorrow. But you know what it says? Verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. God will pay back those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Second Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7. Our God is mighty to save, and the, lo- the Lord does save us now, according to his compassion and loving kindness in multitudes of ways. But ultimately, we are taught to look to the coming of the Savior, to settle all things, to make all things right. Uh, Next application, I forget what number I'm on, but I believe that if you get a glimpse of Jesus as this mighty warrior Robed in splendor, striding striding forward in the greatness of his strength. If you get a glimpse of Jesus as mighty Savior, this hero God who comes to your aid to save you, I believe that you can feel more safe and secure that you than you that you that you can feel more safe and secure than you ever have in your life, because. Of His might and knowing that He is with you, it is a great comfort to know um, that God is not a weak God. It is a great comfort to get a vision of God as a mighty God. I mean, the Bible says directly, um, Exodus says, "The Lord is a warrior," and we need we need to understand that aspect of God. Next application, you can be a meek person turning the other cheek because we have the Lamb of God to defend us. God is mighty enough to deal with those who do, who do evil to us. And that's why the Bible says, uh, take no vengeance, but leave room for the vengeance or leave room for the wrath of God. You don't need to fight your battles. God is mighty to save you. And the last application, uh, don't go around talking like you have a weak and incompetent God. I mean, if you really believe that, that God is mighty to save you, if you really believe that, if you believe that we have a mighty Savior, don't go around talking like you have a weak and incompetent God. I mean, is your God mighty to save? I mean, Scripture reveals that kind of God. Believe that God is mighty enough to save from anything, from your past, from the things that were wrong about your home life growing up, from abuse, from neglect, from abandonment, from what happened to you in your home or at school. None of these things can hold you captive. Believe that God has provided everything for you to walk in victory in this life. You were crucified with Christ to free from sin, and he raised you up in newness of life. According to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So that you no longer are a slave to sin, but you are free to live for God. You're free to go to forget about yourself, to go love people. You're free to stop complaining and start giving thanks and rejoicing. God did a work. He did a mighty work to save you, to pull you out of your past, to pull you out of your sin, to release you from your sins, to set you free, to set the captives free and to give you a garment of praise to turn you in to a child of God to release you from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we, need, we just need, you know, Josh talked last week about letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. I mean, that, these are the kind of thoughts that need to dwell in your mind and your hearts. These are the kind of thoughts that need to dwell richly within you, so that you can walk in victory and in joy in the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you uh, for this mighty revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would open our eyes and see who is this coming to save us, striding forward in the greatness of his might. Lord, let us see that it is you, our Savior, that you are mighty in power. Give us a vision of that, Lord. Let, us affect, let it affect us down to the level of our hearts and our emotions. Uh, certainly our, affect our minds and our thought life, Lord. But let us have a revelation of you in such a way that we are gripped and grasp, and grasp this image of you. We love you, God, for loving us. We love you for your tenderness. We love you for the sweet things that you say to us, that you delight in us and take pleasure in us. We also love you, Lord, because you are mighty to save. And we pray this in your name.